HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. So I want to introduce you to our keynote speaker. Uh, she was not here uh, with, with us during the first symposium, but one of her colleagues was, and, we, and so we had a whole sort of section of the symposium on microbiology. But last year, uh, Dr. E.A. Erin McKenney uh, joined us last year to present on her work with, um, with uh, the what we call Citizen Science Project, uh, the collection of sourdoughs from all over the world. Um, and uh, she's here to kind of tonight to tell us the rest of the story, everything that, that, that started in last year's talk. We'll hear where it's gone from here. And uh, I just want to point out that my favorite part of her bio, which is in the program, um, is the line, in grad school at North Carolina State and Duke, she collected poop from 142 animals to investigate. Well, I don't need to continue from there, you, the rest of the story. We're going to let her tell us the rest of the story since she's here with us tonight. So I give you Dr. Erin McKinney. Hey, y'all. Can you hear me OK? It's picking up? All right. So I'm going to give kind of an impromptu. We'll imagine that this is coffee with all 100 of you at once, right? Normally, I would have some fabulous slides and visuals for you, but tonight it's off the cuff. It's all in my head. So I will be hand waving, thus the lav mic. Um, I will be describing the images in my mind and gesturing wildly to kind of illustrate them for you, all right? It is going to be awesome. Dinner and a show just in reverse order, okay? Um, so uh, I'm Erin. I'll be around for the workshops tomorrow and the next day. So um, with the idea that any questions that y'all have to follow up with anything that I'm talking about tonight, please feel free to ask. And we'll have a participatory um, kind of activity toward the end as well, okay? So um, first, all of you know what sourdough is, yes? Okay, excellent. So I'm in a room of friends here. Usually I have to explain that, right? Um, an exciting update from the science, not from my lab, um, but from the world of science, right? Have you all heard, um, typically it's accepted that sourdough has been used to bake bread for 10,000 years, right? We think about ancient Egypt. There is a new paper within the last year that um, there was evidence found of grain grinding and bread baking 40,000 years old. So before agriculture, before we were growing fields of wheat, we were gathering grains from grasses around us. 
right? And there is now evidence that we were not only gathering those grains, but we were grinding them and fermenting them and baking bread with them. So it hasn't always depended on organized agriculture. Um, so that's, that's an exciting update. I mean, you know, microbial cultures lie at the heart of human cultures. Bread has been such a staple and a part of our existence for over 40,000 years, it looks like. I mean, that's incredible. Even more incredible when you think about the microbes at the heart of those cultures, we did not really know existed until 1600 or so, right? So for tens of thousands of years, humans have been basing our culture, all of those foods and drinks that we love and perform rituals around, we've been basing our cultures, they've been an unwitting accommodation of microbial communities. So what I love about microbial ecology is one, studying these different complex communities, whether they're in your gut or in foods that you put into your gut, right? These complex, you're, you're teeming with superhero sidekicks your entire life that are helping you digest your food and train your immune system. They are here for you, but not really because they've been doing their thing for four billion years, right? So we're incredibly lucky to be covered inside and out with these tiny, not germs, right, but friends with us all the time, from cradle to grave. Um, and they're, they're tied up in our well-being from day to day, but they're also tied up in everything we do. The foods that you crave, probably you don't crave them, your gut microbes do. And they're sending you signals that affect your brain and your behaviors to go seek out those macronutrients in the forms of different foods. So to me, as a microbial ecologist, I'm thinking all the time about the world that we don't see, these invisible multitudes that really shape everything about who we are and why we are the way we are and what we do and how we do it. Um, and I find that humbling and inspiring and exciting. So hopefully you're getting some of those vibes, right? Um, so we have sourdough, which is deeply embedded in our history as humans, right? Um, but really we haven't really studied everything to do with sourdough microbially that we could globally, right? So we had this uh, amazing opportunity in Rob Dunn's lab, where I work at NC State University over in Raleigh, um, to engage the public through citizen science or public science, right? That's this practice of engaging the public who don't necessarily have a background in formal scientific training. They almost certainly don't have access to DNA sequencers or even pH probes necessarily, any of this kind of fancy lab equipment um, that you might imagine that the scientists and the white lab coats are using all of the time in our fancy lab setups, right? So what I love about public science is an opportunity to empower anyone in the world to engage scientifically to answer questions that are yet unanswered to help discover and push the boundaries of science in ways that I, as a formally trained scientist, could not achieve on my own, right? So I also find this public science aspect of the Global Sourdough Project to be um, elating, really. Um, so three years ago, we launched the Sourdough Project. We sent out uh, a questionnaire for anyone who had a sourdough starter at home to you know, tell us, how old is the starter? Where did you get the starter from? Um, what sex are you? Are you a male or a female body keeping this starter alive? How old is your body that is keeping the starter alive? Do you have pets in your home? How many people live in your home? What style of home do you live in? Is it an apartment, a split level, a multifamily unit, a cave? 
right? We had a lot of like open-ended questions. Anything goes because we have no idea. The best way to find out the broadest diversity uh, possible in sourdough starters is to have as little control as possible over those starters. So we didn't send people ingredients to make their own starters this time. Instead, we asked them, what do you feed your starter? How often do you feed it? Do you keep it on the counter or in the fridge? All of those uh, kind of bullet point things that we think about from a human's point of view, all the things that we can control in managing and taking care of our sourdough starters that we predicted might have some sort of an impact on the microbial diversity, the bacteria and yeast that reside within those starters over years and decades. These are heirloom pets that outlive you, right? So we got a thousand respondents to these questionnaires. It was really exciting. And at the bottom of the questionnaire was, oh, P.S., if you have a starter and you would like for us to sequence the DNA and tell you what type of bacteria and yeast live in your starters, send us a quarter cup by mail, triple bagged in Ziploc bags to Tufts University in Boston. And we would love to follow up and tell you more about the microbes that live in your starters. These starters not only have names, they all have unique personalities, and it turns out smells, especially when they come in by mail. Many of these packages were inflated like balloons. Um, the FedEx and UPS and USPS workers were all um, very uh, forgiving, <laughs> very patient, very kind uh, with the folks at Tufts University. So um, my colleague Liz Landis received all of these packages. We have pictures of just you know stacks six and 10 feet high throughout the lab, all of these envelopes that she took pictures of to curate where they came from, at what time they had come in. Then, you may appreciate this from the culinary world, she snipped the corner to make a piping bag out of that innermost Ziploc bag. Because if you have ever tried to backslap sourdough into a two mil tube, it's horrific. It is not a clean or successful or an easy process. So she discovered the joys of the piping bag. She piped a little bit of uh, sourdough starter into a two mil tube, so think about half a teaspoon that we sent off to Colorado, um, UC Boulder, to sequence the DNA from the bacteria and the yeasts so we could kind of take a roll call of every sourdough starter. Think about reading the last names of the phone book of each of those communities so that we can compare communities of all these sourdough starters across the world, right? Um, a total of 571 participants from 17 countries across the world sent us samples of their starters. And we were able to sequence the DNA and also to culture the actual uh, bacteria and yeast colonies, right, from those communities growing in those starters. It's important to have both pieces of information because the DNA helps us to see not only who is 99% dominant in each of those different types of communities, who the majority players are, but also those more, um, those more rare members of each community, right? So the ones that there might only be a handful of them, but they may play a very important role, right? This is foreshadowing, right? How do those rare players like, play an important role, okay? And then the cultures actually give us the ab ability to manipulate those organisms that are truly living in those starters and do experiments with them after we start to answer some questions and ask even more, right? Everybody on board with me so far? These hand gestures are doing well? Okay, maybe not, but it's very entertaining. So we got the DNA sequencing back, uh, that data back about almost two years ago now. Um, and the, 
the DNA sequences, first we had to comb through all the metadata from these different um, questionnaire responses. It took three days with six researchers, myself included, sitting in a room just staring at giant spreadsheets just to curate that metadata to get it to a point where we could analyze the DNA sequencing, which was a very difficult process, but incredible to have five amazing other researchers in the same room at the same time, all, you know, same problem, six brains, we can work this out, right? So three days later, we run the analyses, and we find one, Saccharomyces cerevisiae dominates over 75% of the starters from across the world. No matter where your starter is from around the world, Saccharomyces cerevisiae tends to be there. And when it's there, it's taking up at least 90% of the community. It's there and it is a power player dominating those sourdough starter communities. We had a lot of questions there. Maybe they're baking a lot with commercial yeasts, except yeast cells are so big, we don't think of them as big because they're microscopic, but they're so big they don't really float through the air really well unless they've been you know, lifted by um, an overactive KitchenAid or something, right? If you have like a cloud of, of dust, your bread dough, um, I've had some lacto-fermented vegetables grow a nice little film of Saccharovisiae before because they've been contaminated by um, some well-meaning other bakers in the kitchen, right? So, but unless they're actually airborne through that um, overzealous mixing process, they're really not going too far from your mixing bowl. So it's not likely, just based on the weight of yeast cells, that the Saccharomyces cerevisiae that dominates all of these different starters from around the world is due to commercial yeast contamination. Okay? So we had one mystery. Why are we seeing so much Saccharomyces cerevisiae? And also, why do all of the different colonies of Saccharomyces cerevisiae grown from these starters look different? Some are smooth, some are wrinkly, some have this weird little halo around them. So you have one species with many different flavors, right, or, or different versions of one species. So there's a lot of variation as well that we maybe hadn't uh, thought much about or given much credit to before. When we looked at the lactic acid bacteria, we discovered over 70 different types of lactic acid bacteria in all of these sourdough starters. Um, so a lot more diversity. If you imagine these different bar graphs, the one for the block of bar charts for the Saccharomyces cerevisiae would be a giant block of, let's say, rust-colored orange, because that's what it was in my PowerPoint, right? Um, if you look at the one for the lactic acid bacteria, it's shattered and fragmented like a mosaic. All these 70 different types and more of these lactic acid bacteria are scattered throughout. You do see a long trail of lactobacillus brevis, which may have come in on plant matter, right? And you also see a big block of, let me remember, lactobacillus san franciscensis, okay? Another key player that maybe sounds quite familiar, an old friend to sourdough communities. So again, there are a lot of questions there, right? How many of those starters were from San Francisco, right? We had to take the wind out of the sails of San Francisco a little bit on that count. Um, but I'll get to that in a second. So we had all of this tremendous diversity that we see from all across the globe. And we thought, OK, what are the patterns here? We see the patterns of dominance, right? One starter tends to be dominated by one or two or three or maybe four types of bacteria and yeast. But it's a, it's, it's a place where weeds seem to thrive. Because when we turned to the microbes themselves and we thought, you know, how do these different microbes grow? 
uh, we actually took five of the top uh, most common bacteria and then the five most common types of yeast from across the globe. We grew each of them individually, right? In, in what we're calling flower juice. It's not an, an official term yet. We basically mixed sterile water with flour and then we filtered it so that we got um, a, a clear liquid that had a lot of the nutrients but none of the actual flower particles and none of the bacteria that are in flower either. So we have this flower juice that was then clear enough that we could shine light through it. Okay, so when you, uh, before you add bacteria or yeast to this flower juice, you shine light through it and all, almost all of the light shines through because there are no bacteria or yeast cells growing in there. And then you add in just a, a small known amount of bacteria or yeast, only one type per tube. And you let it grow over time and you keep shining that light through the tube. So over time, the yeast or bacteria cells, they are chewing up all of those nutrients. They are thriving in the flower juice. And as, they, um, as they're thriving, they're growing, dividing, multiplying. So you can imagine with every life cycle or every reproductive cycle of these bacteria or yeast, you get more and more cells packed in there. So you have a higher and higher optical density is what we would call it. So the more cells that are growing happily in that flower juice, the less light can pass through it. So by shining light through these tubes of juice, <laughs> we can actually measure how many bacterial or yeast cells are growing over time. So we can plot growth curves over a period of 36 to 48 hours. And you can imagine, I'll draw it backwards for y'all. So you start with a very low amount of bacterial or yeast cells, and over time, you have a drastic uptick in the number of cells, right? We would call that maybe an exponential growth curve. That means that these bacteria and yeast that dominate starters from around the world grow very, very quickly. They are behaving like weeds. And to me as an ecologist, this makes a lot of sense. Because with sourdough, we backslop, right, when we're maintaining. Every time we refresh these sourdough starters, we're removing half of the community. So as an ecologist, I'm thinking, what's another, um, another system that is kind of characterized by disturbance, right? So I'm thinking mowing your lawn. I love mowing the lawn. Maybe because I'm thinking about plant ecology the whole time. So you think every time you mow your lawn, you're cutting down all of the grass and anything else in the lawn, right? So you're selecting against any plants that grow very slowly, like trees. So you will never get a forest on your lawn, but you are favoring things that can bounce back and grow quickly to recover from those disturbances every week or two weeks or however often you mow your lawn, right? So you're favoring things like grass, like dandelions and other weeds, which is a value-laden term. I think they're highly successful, you know, rapidly growing organisms, right? So it seems then when we look at the growth rates of these top most common bacteria and yeast in the sourdough starters, that we are favoring the weedy species, okay? So still with me, yeah? All right, so I'm going to backtrack, though. We were really glad to find this out because when we looked at the patterns of the metadata, like looking back through the questionnaires, right, and we were trying to align the questionnaires, what people had answered that we thought would really predict a lot of the diversity that we saw, we really didn't find a lot of high correlation between what people are doing or where they live and what is living in their starters, okay? So, for example, we found that geography tended to correlate with what types of fungus, like molds, live in starters. But 
How many of y'all are eating bread that's coming from a moldy starter? Okay, no hands, that's good. So that must mean that those molds, this is, this is your foreshadowing from before, right? The molds that bear a geographic signature are in very low abundance in the starters. They are not active enough to actually make your starter fuzzy or smell funky or give you food poisoning, right? Which is great for starters, but it doesn't explain a lot of the data, right? So the molds are following these kind of geographic where you live in the world sort of rules. When we looked at the bacteria, especially lactic acid bacteria, we found that they follow a completely different set of rules. They're following rules like what type of flour are you feeding? How often are you feeding? Are you keeping your starter on the counter or in the fridge? Those sorts of rules don't depend on where you live in the world, but how you live in the world. So the bacteria are following much more local, within-house factors, right? But even still, those major driving factors in our data set, where you live, how you live, how you manage your starter, all the things that make us feel comfortably in control, how much of the data do you think that explained? Pop quiz. Ooh, I'm a teacher. Ooh, well done, 10%, 10%. Who's surprised by that, besides the people who guessed that? That's like saying 10% of you are here because you're interested in bread at all, right? It's not what we would have predicted as humans who feel comfortable about being humans in control of the world. This is something else that I love about microbial ecology. It's humbling. It takes us down a peg, right? So we're remembering across our history we've been dependent on complex microbial communities. Now we're realizing we have no control over what is growing in the foods that we make, right? Even though, as you'll learn across the next two days, we have all of these management techniques. I know exactly how, well I don't, but you know exactly how to treat your doughs, what temperature, what hydration, what fermentation time and length you need to achieve a specific dough rise and flavor and end product. So how are we doing that if we have no knowledge or control of these different microbial communities? One, I think we are favoring the weedy species that do happen to have uh, a leavening effects and acid-producing functions within those sourdough starters. Two, when we looked not just at the individual types of microbes and how they grow on their own, but how they interact in a sourdough, we're finding that competition may explain some of these different patterns that we see across the data. So, um, for example, when we, um, we kind of tossed the surveys out the window when we realized that humans can't explain anything, and we're like, okay, humans, bye. Microbes, what can you tell us? So excluding any of the human survey data, we then just compared the microbial communities to each other, two at a time, right? So we did pairwise comparisons for all of the pairs of the microbial communities of all the starters, 571 of them, right? There's a mathematical equation to calculate how many pairwise comparisons there are, and I don't have it in my brain. But it is several many, right? So we did all these pairwise comparisons, and by comparing them, we we're able to see two at a time which starters have more similar communities to each other and would fall closer to each other on, say, a family tree of starters. Um, than starters that have very different communities, right? So again, using the phone book analogy, this would be like comparing cities in the US and saying LA and New York City are more similar to each other than either is to Anchorage, Alaska, right? So 
as we build out that family tree, you can imagine that these different sourdough starters that belong to the same clusters have very similar microbial communities compared to starters in other clusters, right? Still got gotcha? All right. So it's always super empowering to give a talk about invisible things with only hand gestures, and you're still on the same page. So thank you for being an attentive audience. Um, so we built this kind of cluster heat map that told us not only which starters are most closely related to each other in terms of which bacteria and yeast are present, but also which bacteria and yeast um, kind of define each of those different clusters. So for example, cluster 15 um, is defined by a high prevalence of Lactobacillus san franciscensis and um, Saccharomyces cerevisiae, right? So it's, it's your kind of typical stereotypical um, sourdough starter that we might think of, right? Um, so, and I say 15 because we identified 15 different types of clusters that each have distinct microbial communities. Even though those communities are most often dominated by only one or two, maybe two, different types of yeast and bacteria. So these communities are incredibly simple, but incredibly distinct. And that distinction has very little to do with humans, right? Even though the humans are spending so much time and labor and effort and love taking care of these starters over decades. So having had this heat map cluster and realizing that we have nothing to do with it, we um, turned first to the microbes themselves, right? Um, and we found not only that some of these most dominant taxa are growing really quick, so that's the weeds, but we're also finding that some of these microbes exclude each other. So across those different families of starters, we find that Kazakhstania humilis and Lactobacillus san franciscensis do not tend to occur in the same starter at the same time in the same place. And what we think might be at the heart of that is maltose because they both love maltose. And if you both love the same thing and there's a limited amount of it, you are going to butt heads in a serious way, right? So we now believe it's not only the inherent uh, characteristics and properties of each single bacterium or yeast, it may also be their interactions with each other, whether they're cooperative or competitive in these starters. They may exclude each other, right? This town ain't big enough for the two of us, right? There's a lot of... Uh, puns and kind of trite cliches that actually work quite well for sourdough starters. Um, so having thought about, you know, we're, we have ongoing tests there. Um, so Liz Landis at Tufts is now um, performing a series of uh, competition experiments with sterile flour and water into which she's introducing uh, only two types. It's a two will enter, one will win scenario, kind of bracketed tournament championships uh, between all of those top most abundant taxa to see is it truly a, a competition and exclusion principle or is it who gets there first? If I make it first and I grow faster than everyone else, then nobody else even has a chance. Or is it I might get there second, but I've got some sneaky warfare and you better watch out because I'm taking over. Right? That's not to y'all. That's just bacteria to bacteria. Okay? So we have these competition experiments ongoing. So maybe next year's symposium will have some more updates. Um, but in the meantime, we also obviously want to know what do these different cluster types of sourdough have to do with the flavor and the rise? Do these different microbial communities actually have a significant impact on the end product, the bread itself, right? I mean, that's what we care about. That's the entire point of saying, 
my sourdough starter smells like this, it acts like this, and I love the bread that I make with it, right? Otherwise, you'd chuck yours, take your neighbors, we'd all have the same sourdough starter over time. But we don't. So in order to test how and whether these different microbial communities are actually producing different breads, we first did a series of dough rise experiments. Okay? So again, with the sterile water and flour, okay, we revived, I call these the Lazarus starters. Um, so we were keeping them cryogenically frozen. It's life is sci-fi in the sourdough research community at this point. Um, so when we first got those starters, we wanted to keep them functional, but we didn't want to have to backslip and feed 571 starters, right, until we were ready to study them further. So you dip them in this, it's a sugary glop called glycerol, and it's like cryogenic freezing. It's a thick enough soup that when you freeze it, it doesn't burst all those bacterial and yeast cells in the deep freeze. So that when you thaw them out, they're still alive. So thus, the Lazarus starters. We took them out of the freezer. We revived them, feeding them the same inputs of flour and water. Uh, and we grew them in test tubes. So they're like nano starters, right? So we have test tube racks of all of these starters that have been fed the same inputs. And we trained a camera on them. So now this is very meta. Right? So we trained a camera on all these starters. We'll catch up there. <laughs> so we trained a camera on all these starters for a total of 36 hours after feeding them all the same inputs. And we find with computer software measuring the pixel differences in how they rise over time that those different starters containing different communities belonging to different cluster family types of starters, they have different dough rise growth curves. So it's not just the individual microbes themselves, it's the communities as a whole that have a different effect on the way that dough rises over time. And it's not just that. What is a bread with rise if it doesn't have flavor? So the next stop was to the, the gas chromatography mass spectrometer, or GC mass spec. It's a machine about this big. You take a tiny magnet about this big, you suspend it in that test tube over those 36 uh, hours while the dough is, being, is rising, and you collect all the gases and aromas that those different communities are making. Then you stick it into the GC mass spec. It bakes in a tiny fashion. All of those smells off of that magnetic stir bar sends most of it down this tiny, really long copper tube so that each of those different compounds has time to separate based on its size. And then when it burns in this tiny light of greatness, Right? Um, the, the machine is able to actually say, this is the size of the compound, and this is probably the chemical structure, and thus its identity. And this is how much of it was produced. So we have the number and type and amount of different compounds that were produced by each of these different starters. We identified over 200 star compounds in the first two sourdough starters. So simple communities complex aromas. At the same time, another bit of that tiny compound is sent to the ODP sniffer device, where a trained sourdough sommelier, as I call them, is sitting there with their nose in a funnel and going, you can hyperventilate pretty quickly doing this, I found out. At the same time that the compound is identified and quantified, they're identifying, oh, woody floral notes, oh, roses, oh, fecal, right? Um, all these different aromas, and they're also pushing a button to quantify the intensity of those top and bottom notes associated with each of the compounds. So my hope is that through all of these different um, techniques, we're able to really uh, 
say not only who's living in each community, a phone book analogy, but also kind of read through the, the resumes or the job descriptions of these different communities as a whole to find out not only do we have different families of sourdough starter types based on the communities that they have, those communities then produce a dough with a different rise and indeed with different smell profiles. So. <laughs>